Good evening. Tonight's Old Testament scripture reading can be found on page two of your bulletin from the book of Zechariah, chapter nine, verses nine through 13. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you Double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? O Lord, as you reign, you're no longer dead, you're alive. You reign over all of life. It means you have the power to do a great work in each of our lives. We come here uh, so desperate for that, too desperate to play religion, uh, too desperate to believe that we can actually uh, be our own saviors, too desperate to believe that we can walk through life by our own power and competence. And so we're in that place We pray, O Father, show us your Son, our King. In Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, if you've been tracking with the weather in the Midwest and the South, uh, man, it's been rough, huh? A lot of devastation, a lot of destruction. And um, when that sort of thing happens, the first order of business along with finding the injured and caring for them, is restoring power. Got to get the power back on. And it's uh, not as simple as flicking on a switch. I spent some time this week just sort of reading about the process. Wow. Involved plans, protocols to get things on, and there's a lot riding on it. Not just individual lives, but mental state. The longer time goes without those things, the more trauma occurs. The life of businesses, I read one stat that said, uh, if a business in some way isn't up and running within 24 to 48 hours, the chances of its staying open just begin to diminish. There's a lot hanging on restoring power. And then I began thinking about what it's been like for us the last couple of years. We, we have experienced sort of a slow motion disaster, right? And uh, having a sense of being without power, needing power restored, restored to our first responders that have given so much of their lives, it's just been over and over, restored to our economy and our businesses, restored to us as individuals, When I talk to people, I've lost count of the times when I say, how are you? And the answer is, I'm drained. I'm exhausted. (laughs) 
I'm tired. I'm just making it. And uh, the typical charging stations that we normally go to, right, to recharge, well, what we found out is they're not working like they used to. In some ways, we find ourselves in a catch-22. Um, one thing that's been noticed about relationships is that's one of the big recharges in our lives. But during the pandemic, we have felt in our fatigue, ah, that really won't help me. And so we don't go to them. We can't, we can't even get to the things we know we need to recharge. And so if anything we've seen during this time is that we need a power beyond ourselves. I hope during this pandemic you've at least learned that about yourself. We need a power beyond ourselves. And so we share something in common with the original audience here, Israel, because they are depleted and they're in need of restoration. They've lost their homeland. They've lost their kingdom. Their community is all scattered. They've lost their people. And so Zechariah prophesies about a king who will come and will restore those things. He will restore the homeland. He will restore the king. He will restore the people. And we're focusing on that middle part about this king who would come. And the reason this is worth spending our time on, the reason it's good news is because the promise is not just limited to Israel back then. It was actually a much wider promise given to any and all that turned to this king for power. That invitation is for you tonight. Would you avail yourself of a king and his power? So the way we're going to look at that is, first of all, why... Can this king do what we can't? Why can he restore? And second of all, what does he actually restore? Let's look at those two things together. Why this king can restore. Now, the longer you've lived, you probably have had this experience where a leader has disappointed you. And maybe it was because, uh, it, you know, it's hard when it was an oversight, it's hard when it's maybe their ability or they lack the smarts, but what really stings is when it's because of a lack of character. When a leader disappoints when it's because of their lack of character. That's, that's the hardest one to take. And so Israel stayed at this point. Their inability to be restored wasn't because the smarts of the king or the ability... It was because of the moral failure. Even their greatest king, who's alluded to in this passage, King David, and all his greatness, couldn't hold on and sustain his kingdom because of his own abuse of power. And so, we find ourselves with this, I, and this is what the Bible painstakingly tries to teach every one of us that even its greatest heroes couldn't be everything they wanted to be. Everything for their people. They would find that they would misuse their power, and it's not just exclusive to the kings of the Bible. You and I can look at our own lives, right? A parent filled with anxiety and anger finally just loses their temper, and the, the words they use, the power they have, the authority, well, it's it's not pleasing to God. 
Or maybe you felt vulnerable in your job. And so the way that you try to maintain a sense of power is through just pouring yourself more, more into your work or maybe resorting to gossip, running someone down who's succeeding. You know, all of us have this temptation. And so even if we wanted to, even if you and I could find that leader, and this is something that, right, again, the longer you live, and especially in Washington, as much as it, it's fine to celebrate, right, our leaders and our candidates and be excited about what they stand for, there's always people, right, that hang their hopes, and it's just one cycle after another. <laughs> one cycle after another. And so Zechariah tells us that there is one who has not faltered in his character, and because of that, he actually has the capacity to restore us. And there's two things about his character, even though I'm holding up three. Two things in his character. <laughs> Presbyterian pastors just thinking threes all the time. So two things. The one is righteousness. So another thing that this passage alludes to, along with King David, is Psalm 72. And it was a song for a coronation of a king. Now, like when you go to a wedding, you're liable to hear a song about ideal love. When you go to the coronation, you would hear a song about what an ideal king was. These are some of the lyrics of that song. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. This was part of what the ideal king was supposed to do, protection and prosperity. Set the conditions whereby the people could prosper. Jesus shows up in the first sermon he preaches. He pulls on these themes by way of the prophet Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me, I think almost like a coronation, has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and liberty to the oppressed. As you and I grow tired of the cries of the poor, and we grow tired of the cries of the oppressed, either in our need and compassion or just maybe even becoming cynical or laying the fault at their feet, Whatever it would be, as we grow tired of that righteousness, Jesus never did. He never got tired of all those demands upon him. His social righteousness never lapsed. And where you and I can easily, when we're in a jam, tell a white lie or find a way to skirt out it. I've been trying to find a dog sitter lately. Uh, that's not a plug, but... You know, if you're talented, you can talk to me about it, but I don't know. Maybe it's me, but every time I, I'm going to stop mentioning it's a puppy because I'm getting a lot of, I'm sorry, I happen to be out of town. I've never, I've never realized so many dog sitters could be out of town the weekend I need help. Sorry, that's my cynicism. So he's righteous. But the second thing is, 
He trusts in God. Now, many of us are familiar with this idea on Palm Sunday. Jesus rides into Jerusalem mounted on a young colt, a young donkey. And part of that, of course, was a sign of his uh, gentleness and humility, but it actually had a reference point before King David. After King David sins big time, he commits adultery, orchestrates a murder, God says to him, because of this, even though God forgave him and he stays at his throne, because of this, the sword will never leave your house. And the big example of that is when David's son Absalom stages a coup. He sways all these folks and David has to flee from Jerusalem on a donkey. He's in a position of humility and as he's going, one guy just begins to curse him, cast curse at him. And so on Palm Sunday, you find Jesus entering humbly on a donkey, but he will be riding into a place where people will curse. One of the signs that David was trusting in the Lord was on the day that he returned to Jerusalem, instead of wiping out all those people that rebelled against him, he said, there won't be any more death this day. He showed grace to his enemies. And so as Jesus rides in and receives curses for his enemies and even flogging and death, he doesn't kill them. He gives his own life so that they might live. This is the king who trusts in God. But how does he not resort? Well, it's because even Jesus is trusting in his father. Another thing in this passage we pick up on is uh, Zechariah says that God will cut off the chariot and the war horse of Israel, which means this king will accomplish victory not by ordinary means and weapons of war. See, even when God told Israel back in the law of Moses that he would permit them to have a king, one of the things he expressly said was, I don't want this king to amass chariots and horses because he'll end up trusting in them. And that's the very thing that Solomon did, David's son. Resorting to the weapons of the world, the king's number one weapon was supposed to be his faith. So when the crowds and mobs come for Jesus with clubs and swords... He says, don't you think I could call upon my father and 72,000 angels would show up here? But the scripture must be fulfilled. He would win a victory, not with the weapons of the world. He would win a victory through humility and weakness, which was the cross. But then, you and I think, subjects of the king have the same call upon them. You know, each of us has our arsenal of worldly weapons. When you feel threatened, when you feel hemmed in or quartered in, what are the things that you turn to as a worldly weapon? Uh, maybe it's anger. Maybe it's your really good arguer. It's reason. Maybe it's charm. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's family name and status. You know, it's that thing again that is so close at hand. We're so used to pulling it out, right? We're so familiar. The muscle memory's there. And one of the things that God does through your journey is he disarms you. 
He says, well, like Peter, will you put the sword down? And can you trust in me to begin to fight your battles? And when we do that, it really changes the way we respond. The words that we say, the actions that we take, the attitude that we have. It's a sign we're trusting in the king. And it also gives us a wisdom to see what the real battle is. The New Testament says that one of the signs that the Spirit of God is in you is you start to see, I'm really not fighting against flesh and blood here. There's another battle behind the battle. There's a spiritual battle. You know, so many times in the culture wars that happen, Christians get so pulled into what's before them, they've forgotten even to, to, to perceive what the true battle is. And when we don't trust in the king, we just take up the weapons of the world and fight the same way. And so, it's the character of this king, his righteousness, and the fact that he trusts in God means everything for what he then delivers to us, which I'm going to speak to now in our closing point. What does he restore? The first thing we're told he restores, and Mike mentioned it at the beginning of our service, is peace. We're told that the king is actually a preacher of peace. He will speak peace to the nations. He will rule from sea to sea. The king will subdue his enemies, not through unjust war, like we've seen today and as we've seen all throughout generations in the history of the world. He will not subdue enemies that way. He will subdue enemies from the inside out by speaking peace to them, by speaking grace to them. And by that, he'll be able to unify the nations and create a global people. This is what the gospel has done. If you track throughout history, this is what it's done, right? Where nations, there is a solidarity that exists among followers of Jesus throughout the world that no nation lines can create. It's a spiritual solidarity. And the hint of it came... Partly in Jesus' ministry as he ministered to Gentiles, but really came when this Holy Spirit was poured upon the church and the global church began. But what was it that caused that peace? Well, the book of Ephesians tells us. You know that one of the worst enemies in Jesus' day were Jews and Gentiles. Suspicion and hatred ruled their relationship but they end up sitting side by side in a pew. What was it? The Apostle Paul gives this explanation. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is how the peace occurred. And it's alluded to in our text where we read, because of the blood of my covenant with you. When God established his covenant with Israel back in Sinai, the people had to be sprinkled with blood, and it was a way to remind them, if you don't fulfill the covenant, 
your life will be required. The ultimate penalty is death. Back in that day, right, many, some of you know this, they would cut animals in half. And you would walk through both parties. You and I had a contract, I would walk, a covenant, I would walk through, you would walk through. A visual reminder, anybody that reneges on this, may this happen to you. But thank God there was a greater, older covenant before the covenant of Moses. The covenant of grace that was given to Abraham. So Abraham has a vision, and guess what it is? It's of animals torn in two. And God is bringing before Abraham the covenant. But to our surprise and delight, Abraham doesn't walk through. God does in the form of a torch. He goes through by saying that I will take upon myself through my own death the penalty of the covenant. It'll be through my blood that peace occurs between you and I. You can spend your life trying to atone for your own sins. You could even try to shed your own blood for your own sins. The Apostle Paul said you could give your life to the flames. You could give all you have to the poor. You could work in the greatest nonprofit until you're 100 years old and die. You could commit to any one of our partner ministries forever and ever and ever. It won't give you peace. It won't. The only way I ever found peace was through the gospel. You're taking seriously that God is a real person and he's a moral person and I really have something before him. And I am in in a not easy spot. (laughs) But what he gave me, what he called me to, wasn't a life of trying to wear myself out. Will Will said it so wonderfully It's just a very unfair exchange on God's behalf. He gets our sin. We get his righteousness and forgiveness. The power of the gospel. And it's just so different than the world. Meg and I have just started watching The Gilded Age. Anybody watching The Gilded Age? A few people? Embarrassed to say that you are? Okay. (laughs) We're always down for a period piece. But, you know, The Gilded Age is about... Um, you know, basically turn of the century in New York, last century, between those with old money and new money, those with old status and new status. And this family, we're only into episode three or four, so maybe, you know, you guys, don't spoil it for me, okay? Anyway, but um, there's this one new money family that has been done wrong, and then they get a chance to really stick it. And they do. And uh, the wife of one of the Alderman shows up and basically appeals for mercy to this uh, matriarch, this mom of the new money regime. And she says, you know, you don't know the way the world works, do you? You cannot write a check without first making a deposit. What she meant was, listen, quid pro quo. That's the way the world works. You're coming to me for mercy, but you hadn't put nothing in my bank account. That's how the world works. And the gospel is completely different because guess what? God does this direct deposit on Easter Day and you and I find our debts cleared. Jesus tells the story of the servant that owed all this money to the king and the king forgives the debt. So, that's where we get our peace. But lastly, hope. 
I love this phrase, and it was it reminded me, you know, God is, uh, I'm on this prayer list. Um, Scotty Smith, this wonderful pastor and mentor in our lives, produces these prayers every day. Uh, but he highlighted that phrase in this passage, prisoner of hope. Prisoner of hope. Now, Israel didn't have prisons like we have prisons. So what it's referring to is not a incarceration prison, but rather to be ruled over by a foreign power. So you saw that reference to waterless pits. Makes you think of Joseph in the Old Testament when his brothers threw him in a pit. And so it's this idea of enemy forces holding you down. The bondage that you can't be free of. For Israel it was Babylon and Assyria, then Rome. But he's saying that the people of the king actually can be prisoners of hope even while they're there. And you see that with Joseph, or you see that with Paul and Barnabas as they sing in Israel. You see it in modern Christians with Corey Ten Boom as she's in a concentration camp and her faith is still going. You see it with the African-American witness during the civil rights as they're thrown in jail, but their faith resounds. This idea that you can be a prisoner, but with hope. And the only way you have that is if you have a king that can eventually bust you out of there. not to get to the punchline early, but was what Easter was about. Jesus busted through. And so the gospel tells us that through the king coming and laying down his life, and I've used this analogy before, uh, but it's been a while, so, you know, and you probably forgot it. Um, But, you know, if you've ever seen a marionette before, you know, the scary puppets that are really big and have, have the strings... Puppets get a bad rap, right, in our, our world. But um, all of us, first of all, the strings are invisible. The strings are invisible. So modern people, the fact that I would say that you are being pulled and tugged by an adversary called the devil or the worst impulses of the world or your own heart and flesh, would be like, no, I'm not, I'm an American. I'm free, baby. I got nothing ruling over me. You know, Satan, don't tread on me, you know? Well, I hope he doesn't. But the point is, you just have to look at your own heart. And so what happens when the king comes into town, he takes a pair of golden scissors and he cuts the strings. Cuts the strings. And you and I find ourselves starting to move in different motion. But, you know, we still feel, even though the chains have been broken, you and I will still carry them around. But you're a prisoner, not in actuality. You've been freed. And that hope is the gospel that Jesus came and set you free. And so, here's what I'm saying. Every one of us still feels, as Martin Luther said, the clinging dirt. And every one of us still feels like we have the chains on us. And if you feel that way, I don't know what area of your life you most feel that way about. We all have a couple, maybe a few people know them. But the areas that are really making you lose hope, through Christ, you can actually begin to be a prisoner of hope. (laughs) 
You can feel that, but you can hope because you know with every passing day, those are weakening. And one day, the shackles will be by the roadside. So, in conclusion, the confidence coming from the king. Have, have you ever seen an athlete take a victory lap before they won the race? I mean, that would really be the height of boasting, right? But that's what Jesus does here. Jesus takes a victory lap before he wins the race. And you can do that too. Through your faith, you can start your victory lap already. Because he has won. He has won that race for you and I. Let's pray. God, we pray, uh, we thank you for Jesus the mighty King. Thank you for um, the liberation that he brings. Thank you for the hope. Even if we feel like we're in bondage, we still can hope, Lord.